You are listening to Veterinary Mental Health, Turning the Stethoscope Around, Episode 7, presented by Thoughtful Life Counseling. Welcome to the podcast. I am Taylor Miller, a veterinarian and a licensed professional counseling intern. Mental health and work-life balance are critical issues for veterinary professionals. While not intended as a substitute for individual counseling, this podcast seeks to address many of the mental health concerns common to members of our profession. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My mental fortitude has been severely tested today as I attempt to record this podcast for you. I have had two small thunderstorms, a hailstorm, a very, very loud starling on the fence outside my window, and a neighborhood car alarm, all providing excellent background noise as I've been trying to record. And each time the interruption lasted for long enough that I switched tasks in order to get something done and had to reorganize my thoughts when I sat down again. So this is about the fifth time I've had to reorganize my thoughts and start again. Luckily, the topic that I'm speaking on today is one that I find endlessly interesting. So never mind, I have already discussed it several times. I'm more than happy to discuss it again. So the title of the episode is The Science of Habit Formation, and all of the information that I'm presenting in today's podcast is based on The Power of Habit, a book by Charles Duhigg, and I do highly recommend that you read his book, in part because it is well-written, well-researched, and just downright entertaining, but also because in the podcast today, I will be going over information presented in the first third of his book the habits of individuals. He also presents sections on the habits of successful organizations and the habits of societies, and those sections are equally interesting. I do hope to come back to his information on the habits of successful organizations because I feel there's a lot of information that could be useful in shaping the culture of your specific veterinary hospital or clinic. For today, we will focus on the habits of individuals, and that topic alone could easily fill multiple podcasts, and it probably will. I know that I will come back to this topic, as it is one of utmost importance. Partly because more than 40% of the actions we perform each day are habit-driven rather than decision-driven. So if 40% of our waking lives are driven by habits, then it follows that if not 40% of my podcasts, at least a large number of my podcasts should be devoted to that portion of our lives that we are living without thinking. And certainly each time a habit is initiated, we are thoughtful about the routine that goes into it. But as that routine becomes automated, as our brain conserves mental effort by creating a habit loop, we lose direct decision-making. This is critical both because habits in large part are responsible for the little facts of our daily lives that make up our well-being. Certainly if we consider what we are spending active mental decision-making on, those things we have day-to-day control over. We're making an active decision in the moment so we can use the best information we have in the moment to make those decisions. The habits that make up the other 40% of our lives were created some time ago, and who knows what type of mental process or decision-making went into the habit as it was created. And some habits are created without any active mental decision-making. With this in mind, these become optimal segments of our lives to thoughtfully adjust in order to improve our well-being. 
let's begin with how habits are formed in the brain. Charles Duhigg reports on an experiment that was completed with rats that beautifully illustrates the arc of how habits are formed. To start with, rats were implanted with an electrode array in their brains to track brain activity as they were moving through a maze. And the maze was a very simple one. It was shaped like a T with chocolate at one end of the top part of the T and the rat's initial cage at the bottom of the long part of the T. In this experiment, the rats are placed in a little holding cell. They hear a click, their door opens, and they are free to explore the maze and find the chocolate. In the very beginning of this experiment, as each rat was released, it spent a large amount of time, if I'm remembering right, somewhere in the 10 to 12 minute range, exploring the maze, sniffing at things, scratching at things, going up and down the long part of the tea, up and down the short part of the tea, enjoying the chocolate, of course, but generally making a full exploration of its environment. And watching its brain activity, you could see that there was active decision-making and engagement throughout the experience. The pleasure centers certainly lit up when the chocolate was discovered, but this rat's brain was alert and aware. As the experiment went on, nothing changed. It was placed in the holding cell, it heard a click, the door opened, and it was free to explore the maze and find its chocolate. The chocolate was always there. And... As the experiment progressed and the rat was put through the same maze 150 times, I believe, the rat eventually waited for the click, went to the chocolate, and enjoyed the chocolate. So its pattern became a lot more streamlined. Watching its brain activity during that time, what was noticed was the decision-making centers of the brain began to go quiet and the memory centers of the brain began to go quiet. And what you ended up with was a shape that showed a spike of brain activity at the point when the rat heard the click of the door, and another spike of brain activity at the point when the rat encountered the chocolate. And in between, they described the brain waves as similar to a rat who was asleep. This pattern beautifully illustrates the habit loop. The habit loop consists of three chunks. The initial cue or trigger for the behavior the routine or behavior itself, and the reward that signals the end of the behavior or routine, the reason that the behavior or routine was conserved by the brain as an advantageous or desirable habit. And that leaves us with the element of craving. So eventually, if you run through the same habit loop over and over and over again, you get to a point where the cue itself triggers a craving for the reward that you know is coming. And this is our Pavlov's dog all over again. You hear the bell, you start salivating. So at this point with a routine, if the reward and the cue are strongly enough connected in your brain, a craving is set up such that when the cue occurs, you are driven into the routine because the reward is promised. And this pattern is why breaking habits or changing habits can be so difficult because we're already craving the reward of the habit before the actions have even been initiated. This is also where our power comes from. If we understand the elements of the habit loop, we are able to adjust our habits. And we do this by retaining the cue and retaining the reward and substituting a different and more desirable routine in between. Remember, the routine portion of the habit loop is a low brain activity part. There's nothing that is going to preferentially keep 
that segment. The segment that is highly conserved is the cue reward combination. That's where our brain is active and that's the start stop point that has been identified by our basal ganglia as desirable. But it's not always as easy as you might think to change a habit, even if we have the understanding of the cue routine reward cycle. And that's because we don't always recognize or correctly identify the cue and the reward or the craving that has set up this driving force that propels this particular habit. Let's use a lunchtime routine as an example. Say your habit when you're at work is to get the signal from your technicians that your last morning case has been completed. You pick up your purse or your wallet, you jump into your car, you drive two miles down the road, go through the drive-through of the Starbucks, and you get a sandwich and a tall mocha latte. You don't think about it much. This is just what you do. But this last week, you started planning a vacation and you realized that financially, you weren't quite as close to that vacation as you'd like to be. So your goal is to eat a packed lunch every day at the clinic. And so you pack your lunch and you take it in. You're going to be good. Lunchtime rolls around and you're in your car driving before you remember that you had packed a lunch. And that's what habits do. They propel us into our series of unconscious actions before we consciously have a choice or a decision-making point. The next day, you're like, okay, well, this is ridiculous. My lunch is already packed. It's already at the clinic. I'm good. And maybe you put your keys somewhere different. But lunchtime rolls around and you really don't want a two-day-old sandwich. That just sounds awful. So you tell yourself, well, I'll pack a new lunch tomorrow. It'll be fresh. It'll be more appetizing. Just one more day. It'll be fine. So a week goes by and you've had lunch at your desk one time and it was unsatisfying, unfulfilling, and you thought about your Starbucks for the rest of the day. Nevertheless, you are committed to changing this routine. So the first step is to identify the routine itself. This part is fairly easy. When the routine starts, you pick up your keys, pick up your purse wallet, walk to the door, drive the car, through the drive through your mouth opens the same thing as ordered each day, you drive back to the clinic, you park in the parking lot, you consume your lunch, put everything away, walk back into the clinic, start up your job again. The cue here may be as simple as time of day. It's lunchtime, your technician alerts you, that's when the habit starts. The critical part here is to evaluate what the reward is. You may say that it's Starbucks, the actual taste of the food that you're getting, but it may not be quite as simple as that. What is keeping the habit going? Is it the taste of the Starbucks food? Is it the caffeine in the latte that makes the afternoon more bearable? Is it the fact that you've gotten in your car and driven away from the clinic and felt a separation from the clinic for the space of an hour? Is it the fact that you feel you're treating yourself and you need that little boost of self-care in order to feel good about the rest of the afternoon? So there are a lot of options here that may be equally valid. And this is where the scientific part of us gets to engage and we experiment. We change one factor at a time and see which routine change sustains our enjoyment of the routine and which ones do not. Day one, say you get in your car, you drive to Starbucks and you order a vanilla bean scone. So it's tiny, it's small, it doesn't have caffeine, but it still tastes delicious. So you've treated yourself, but you haven't quite spent the money. And then you drive back to the parking lot, unpack your lunch that you have packed this time, eat your sandwich, have your vanilla bean scone, go back inside. Or 
Say you get into the car, you drive to Starbucks, and you ask them to fill up a water and you pay for the cup. You have consumed nothing from Starbucks, but you have driven, you have talked to the barista, and you're sitting in your parking lot with your packed lunch. Or maybe you get in your car and you drive to a parking lot that's two miles away. You don't go through the Starbucks, but you park in a different parking lot and eat your packed lunch. That would satisfy the physical separation from the clinic that might be part of the Q reward system here. After each of these experiments, wait 15 minutes into your afternoon, then check in. Are you still thinking about your Starbucks trip and regretting that you didn't get your latte and mourning the sandwich that you missed? Or have all your urges been satisfied and you're feeling good? Through experimentation, when you are able to identify the specific reward that your habit is designed for, you can conserve that reward and change the routine in between. Say through trial and error, you discover that really you just want to get out of the clinic. It doesn't actually matter that you go to Starbucks. The caffeine isn't critical. You just need to get out. Knowing that that is the reward, you can change the routine such that that same sense of relief is achieved by going for a walk, by getting in the car and picking a different parking lot. Whatever it is that you need to do to satisfy the urge to be away from the clinic. But then you can eat your packed lunch and end up perfectly happy for the rest of the day. Well, maybe not perfectly happy. Those sandwiches are delicious. But still, if you're able to understand what it is you most crave, what kind of craving is initiated by that cue, the habit will be conserved and it will be an easy behavioral transition to move from your Starbucks to your packed lunch. You save your money, you go on vacation, and even after vacation is over, if your new habit is satisfying, you might be able to save that money for a different purpose. Save it up for a weekend jaunt or a book or whatever it is that your next financial goal is. We can also use our knowledge of the habit loop to engineer a new habit. To engineer a new habit, we have to carefully select a cue and deliberately provide ourselves with a reward, a reward that is desirable enough to reinforce willpower during the period before the habit becomes automated, especially if the habit is one you are not terribly excited about. Let's say you want to wake up earlier in the morning so that you're not in a frantic rush between your alarm and getting out the door for work. The first step is to select a cue. This is a little tricky as your current morning routine likely starts with an alarm clock, and the most obvious cue for a new morning routine is also an alarm clock. I'm sure there are some wake-up services or perhaps friends you can recruit unique apps, but it may also be possible to simply alter your typical alarm cue enough that it seems novel. As the simplest option, it may be worth giving this a try first. For some, this might be changing the location of the alarm, so you need to get out of bed to turn it off. For others, it might be changing the sound of your alarm. If you go from a bell-type alarm sound to an energetic song, your brain will have an opportunity to associate that new sound with a new routine and a new reward. So that's your new cue. But what is the reward for waking up early? Intellectually, you know that if you're up earlier, you won't feel as rushed, and that will feel better and you won't forget as many things, but that might not be a strong enough reward in the beginning. A stronger reward might be to plan for a five to 10 minute stretch at the end of your morning routine where you are allowed to sit still with a cup of still warm coffee and simply enjoy its flavor. Maybe you prefer tea, and for those few minutes, you actually let yourself savor the taste. By making that time deliberately, mindfully indulgent, 
you will have something to genuinely look forward to every morning. Eventually, if you're able to respond to your cue enough times and get up, you will begin to crave those five or 10 minutes of peace and centeredness. And when you begin to crave those minutes, when your alarm goes, that cue is going to be effective. You'll be propelled out of bed and into your morning without having to think or use willpower because it will have become a routine. And your reward will be that five or 10 minutes that you get to sit and enjoy your coffee. This has been a whirlwind introduction to the science of habit formation, the components of the habit loop as it is constructed in our basal ganglia, the cue as the start point, the routine which becomes habit, and the reward singling the end of the loop. And truly, each section of the habit loop probably deserves 20 minutes all on its own. And perhaps I will give them their due in future episodes, but we are running out of time already, so I want to leave you with one more brief little nugget of information. And that is an introduction to what are known as keystone habits. These are habits researchers have observed that tend to create widespread change in people's lives despite the fact that you have created or adjusted a single habit. The results from this habit tend to spill over into other aspects of your life and become a catalyst for change. The keystone habits identified in Charles Duhigg's book are exercise, which has a massive effect on a lot of your other well-being or health-related type routines, eating dinner as a family as a catalyst for successful children, making your bed every morning as a catalyst for a successful day. It's incredible how often you see this bit of information, this piece of wisdom included in books about success and personal development make your bed every morning, give yourself that small win before the rest of the day starts, and you'll have that feeling of success going into the rest of your day. I'm sure anyone who has ever looked into any kind of nutrition change has noticed that food journaling is listed as a top habit to develop or cultivate. And then willpower as a habit is a keystone habit. And that makes intuitive sense. And we will definitely be going into the habit of willpower and the science of willpower in future episodes. But for today, we'll just leave it as one in a list of other keystone habits. One thing that I very much want you to avoid is to listen to this list of keystone habits and think, but I'm not making my bed, but my family only eats together two out of seven nights, but I'm not exercising regularly. I don't want this to feel like a list of have-tos. This should feel like a list of possibilities. That if you decide that this is where you want to invest your energy, here are some habits that will give you more reward for your effort than others. I do hope that you will take the time to look into reading the book by Charles Duhigg and getting the the whole story or the rest of the story. On Audible, it's a 10-hour, 53-minute listen. My Kindle tells me that it is a 5-hour, 51-minute read. However, he includes a very hefty chunk of research notes in the back that aren't necessarily part of the meat of the book. If you take off that research section, the Kindle estimate is reduced to about 4 hours, 25 minutes. On Amazon, it's listed as a 300-page book I'm assuming right around 300 pages after you delete those note pages. So roughly 10 pages a day for a month. It's a doable book um, if you have the desire to explore this particular topic further. 
The handout today will take you step-by-step through the adjustment of a current habit. So it'll help you identify the cue and help you sort through the possible rewards to find the one that is actually giving you that craving for the particular habit you're trying to change. Basically a step-by-step walkthrough of what we discussed in the podcast and what is outlined more beautifully in the book itself. Thank you for joining me today, and I very much look forward to talking to you next time. This has been a Mental Health Moment brought to you by Thoughtful Life Counseling. If you found today's episode helpful, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving me a review. You can download the handout mentioned in today's episode by visiting my website at thoughtfullifecounseling.com. To have the handouts delivered by email, please sign up to receive my twice-monthly newsletter. If you have topic requests, questions, or comments, please contact me through my website or any one of my social media platforms. Take care of yourself and tune in next week for an introduction to mindfulness.